Hi, I'm Casey. And I'm Holly, and this is Going Through It podcast from Bardo Consulting. And I'm Adam Perry. Thank you guys for joining us for part two of episode two. We're back with our guest, Dr. Linda G. Manning. Linda, what do you see as the biggest misconception these days about trauma and barriers to treating families who have experienced trauma? Biggest misconception. So, um, you know, so often when we look at an individual or a family that is suffering from the impact of trauma, we ask the wrong question. We ask, what is wrong with you? Right? Uh, And as Gabor Mate and others suggest, the correct question is, what happened to you? What have you experienced that led to this? Um, The responses that we have as individuals to trauma make us feel crazy. When I'm having a trauma response, I feel crazy. But we're not crazy. We're having a normal response to a crazy situation, to a crazy event. Uh, And it's not that those normal responses are always helpful. It's not that those normal responses are necessarily ones we want to continue, but they're normal responses to this event or this situation. And because of that, we have to meet people who are having this response um, to these crazy situations with great compassion um, rather than blaming them, which we so often do in our culture. When people suffer, we so often blame the victim for their own suffering. So rather than blaming them, to meet them with compassion uh, and love, basically. And in terms of barriers, uh, I think a huge barrier to um, treating families or treating ourselves is denial. It's so painful to look at what has happened and how it's impacting us that we do everything we can to avoid it in a million ways. And stripping away that denial is, is the first barrier, right? That's the first barrier. And then so often, um, another barrier is shame. I, I truly cannot think of a single client that I have ever worked with who has experienced trauma, who didn't blame themselves in some way, even though looking at the situation, you know, objectively, there was no blame of any kind on their part, but we do that, we blame ourselves. And it's, it's in some ways a, a psychological defense. If I can tell myself, well, I was raped because I did something wrong, then maybe I can figure out what to do differently so I'm never raped again. If a child can tell themselves, um, my parents aren't bad or wrong, but they're hurting me so I must be bad or wrong, maybe I can figure out a way to be good enough to be loved and cared for the way I want to be loved and cared for. So, you know, working with that shame, moving past that sense of, I don't deserve help, it's another huge barrier. So if we can get past the denial and past the shame and we recognize that we need some help and we want to reach out for help, 
Sometimes help is not available. For some of us, we just don't have the resources to access the help we need. But even when we have the resources, uh, it may be difficult to know what is available and how to find it. You know, where do we turn? What helps? How do I navigate this crazy system of different types of resources when I'm ready? And how do I navigate it when I'm completely overwhelmed with what I'm dealing with and with my dysregulated nervous system? So all of those things are, are barriers to, to getting assistance from trauma. Linda, you've been doing this work a long time. What do you what have you found to be most impactful in mitigating some of those barriers? Hmm. Well, um, again, so much of it is about relationship, right? If if I, as a traumatized person, have someone in my life who can be in relationship with me and who can say to me that it's not all my fault and that I am worthy of being helped and can sort of walk with me through the process of finding what I need, that makes a tremendous difference. Uh, and of course, Structurally, we need to change some systems in this country so that help is available to more people who don't have an abundance of resources at their command, right? But again, mm -hmm. even, even when we are resourced, we need um, the help and companionship of someone to help us get there. It's very, very difficult from a position of being traumatized to to find a way to dig ourselves out of that hole completely by ourselves. I have a little question. If you could redesign the mental health system in America, what would you change? What are the leaders of America missing that you would like them to know? Well, that's just a little question. <laughs> uh, Number one, trauma is real and it's prevalent. You know, when when we um, uh, when we look at the definition of trauma informed care, for example, the very first principle is um, trauma happens. It's prevalent. It's all around us. So acknowledging that, you know, we that that there are so many people suffering from trauma, and that we have to do something about it because when they are not helped, they do damage to themselves, they do damage to others, they create more trauma in the world and it's just a vicious cycle. So acknowledging that trauma exists, that it has an impact and that people deserve a response. People deserve a, a system they can access uh, no matter what their financial condition and where they can get help and quality help. And I know that that's a big, complex thing to create, but that's where we need to head. And in terms of individual families and smaller systems, you know, work groups, um, 
community groups, church groups, whatever. Um, the research on resilience is very, very clear. The most important factor is social support, which of course hopefully includes family support. Um, there are clinicians now and researchers who are wondering out loud if the negative impact of trauma and traumatic events truly comes from the experience itself or if it comes more from being alone and abandoned in the experience. Say that again. Can you, yes. Wait. <laughs> yes. say, that, say that two more times slowly. <laughs> I'm happy to. There are many clinicians and researchers who are now looking at the negative impact of traumatic events and wondering if the negative impact truly comes from the experience itself or also from being alone and abandoned in the experience and its aftermath. If I have someone with me in the trauma who responds to me in a loving and caring way, it makes all the difference. As an example of this that most people could understand, we know that um, soldiers in war, in combat, the thing they rely on is their unit, their band of brothers, right? If their uh, comrades are there with them in the horrifying experience, it makes a difference. If they are supported by the people around them, it makes a difference, right? Uh, it doesn't take away all of the horror of the war, but it makes a difference in how we um, can cope and deal with it. So social support means having people around who listen, who believe the victim survivor, um, who stand in moral solidarity with them. What happened to you was wrong and should not have happened. Um, social support allows the victim survivor to stand in their own truth and acknowledges that harm was done. It's a piece that we often skip over is simply acknowledging that harm was done, right? And that makes such a difference. So that social support, which is so often lacking, so often lacking um, in the face of trauma, is a huge piece of resilience to trauma. And another factor, which is um, in many ways the same thing, but maybe just another way of saying it, is the experience of compassion. That someone is bearing witness to the pain is bearing witness to all of the feelings and not denying them or saying they shouldn't be there, who is willing to be there in it with the person who is suffering. Being with in that way is another huge factor in terms of resilience. Now, there's a little caution here around compassion. Um, there's a difference between wise compassion and what the Buddhists call idiot compassion. <laughs> and we want to support the person in all of their feelings, in everything they feel, every feeling 
in response to trauma is okay. Uh, but we don't necessarily support them in all of their actions, right? Um, they have every right to be angry and to express their anger fully. They don't have a right to be violent. It harms them more in the long run to be allowed violence. They have every right to comfort, um, but indulging unhealthy habits, right, like the abuse of drugs, is not helpful. So it's wise compassion that we want as a companion when we are suffering from trauma, not idiot compassion. It's someone standing with us in our truth, bearing witness to our pain and being with us in it. That makes so much sense. And I think what, what we see and what we talk a lot about families with, that, with trauma, which is pretty every family that comes into contact with us, is, you know, I talk a lot about the repair, right? You can't control what has happened to your loved one or within your system, but the repair of it is something that you can approach and have an impact, right? A positive or a negative, because there is a way to make things more difficult. And so that repair is so key in moving through that Absolutely right, Holly. The repair is absolutely critical. Uh, and this one, you know, brings up a really important point. Sometimes, and this is true for all of us, for every human being, we are the cause of the trauma. We are the cause of the pain. That can happen uh, intentionally or unintentionally. And repair is reaching out and saying, I know I hurt you and I'm sorry and I will be with you in this pain that you're experiencing and I will do everything I can to not harm you in this way again. So yes, repair is absolutely critical. Well, and I think what you're also speaking to, you know, when we're working with families and with other professionals is this call for treatment programs to be trauma responsive, which you've explained so well, you know, from the top down to be aware of and um, mindful of the impact that trauma has, you know, from the top level of their organization all the way through to client services. But I feel that a big part of our work with families is to help help them understand that that the work is not just about finding a treatment center that's trauma responsive that trauma responsive is not just an outward process it's an it's an inward process for the family that that there's some educational piece around helping a family become trauma responsive with their loved one who who may be you know having experienced trauma or witnessed trauma and then the whole circle who's been vicariously traumatized in some way. And so teaching them all and helping them figure out how to support themselves and each other with wise compassion. And so that we're not just re-traumatizing as we move through this. Absolutely, Casey. Absolutely right. You know, I said before that 
the first principle of trauma-informed care is an awareness of the frequency and impact of trauma. Another principle is um, avoiding re-traumatizing. And part of what that means is this thing that you're explaining, that as a system, as a family system or as a um, mental health treatment system or any system, we have to attend to safety. That safety is required before anyone can do any kind of work on their own trauma. Safety is required in order to be able to process trauma or move through it or recover from it. And safety means so many things. It means the ability of the person who's been traumatized to have choice going forward. You know, all their choice is taken away from them in a trauma. So offering choices is critical. Um, helping them to recognize uh, when they get triggered and how to respond and take care of themselves and how to support them in that process is critical. Um, again, standing in their truth, you know, telling the truth about what happened and bearing witness to that. Um, I'll get political here for a moment. I know that a lot of people right now in the country are talking finally about uh, unity and coming together and moving forward politically uh, and not further dividing the country. And I am all for that. And before there can be that kind of reconciliation, there has to be truth. What is the truth of what happened? What is real and what is conspiracy? How do we acknowledge that truth and then come together to support one another? And that's as true in a family as it is in a country. Trauma. Right. It, it feels a little bit like, in some respects, the country is being asked to unify without the acknowledgement. What has happened or, or, you know, just the history in this country. Exactly. And that won't work. That's denial. That's pushing it back under the carpet where it festers and then shows up in some other damaging way. So yes, the truth piece, the accountability piece is very important along with the compassion piece. If you had to make a top three reading list of your all time favorite books on trauma, what would they be? Uh, is this for um, the general public, for therapists who, who just my, just for me personally, my top three. <laughs> um, since you are a member of the general public and also a therapist, <laughs> we'll just say for you. Okay. Well, you probably know, Casey, that my favorite trauma book of all time is an older one. It's called Trauma and Recovery, and it's by Judith Lewis Herman. And I... I'm so impressed by that book. It is so compassionate and so clear about the impacts and describes the experience of trauma long before we knew some of the uh, neurobiological underpinnings of why those experiences happened. So it's a little out of date now, but it's obvious where it's out of date and just the, the feel of it is still wonderful. 
So that would definitely make my top three list. Another one that uh, recently is on my top three list is one by Bonnie Bednock. It's called The Heart of Trauma. And it does a really good job of looking at the impact of trauma on the body and on the nervous system and how we can um, recognize and respond to that and the importance of relationship and reparative relationship to Holly's point in dealing with trauma. So The Heart of Trauma by Bonnie Bednock. And then the third one um, that I would recommend is My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem, which really focuses on the trauma of racism and the trauma that um, white cultures prior to coming to this country experienced and how that led to their acting out trauma on people of color, black people, indigenous people. And some of the ways, some of the common ways, uh, the simple ways that we can uh, be kind to our nervous systems. Things like rocking, singing, chanting, uh, touch, etc. So a brilliant book uh, in terms of those things. So that, that would be my top three right now. Thank you for asking. Thank you for sharing. One more question. If we're not a student at Vanderbilt, how can we learn from you? Are you doing <laughs> workshops? Where can, where can people find you? Um, I do workshops um, with my good friend and colleague, Kenneth Robinson. We do workshops related to how the body responds to trauma and how to work with trauma from a body perspective, a bottom-up perspective. Um, easiest way to find those workshops would be through his website. It's uh, kennethrobinson.com, I believe. <laughs> I think it's .com. Um, um, .net. It's .net, you're right. kennethrobinson.net. So he lists the events there. Uh, we are temporarily not doing something because of the pandemic, but we'll be doing things in person again soon. Um, and I, I hope to do more of these kinds of things in the future, maybe through podcasts or those kinds of information sharing. Thank you so much. I know I've learned a ton just listening to you now and for the past 20 years. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. I'm honored to be part of this. Um, I'm excited about what you all are doing with Bardo Consulting and delighted that you're helping our community in that way and just thrilled to be part of the podcast with you. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you, Linda. And thank you, everybody at home for tuning in to both episodes you are listening to bardo going through it with holly and casey from bardo and consulting i am adam perry please check out the show notes um, on the website and in itunes and spotify 
We put links to each of those three books that Linda recommended. We also put a link to Kenneth's website where they post uh, the trainings that Linda and Ken do. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.